This interview with the Old Town Doc was a gem. He's a Krithia yoga instructor, family medicine, osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine, and cranial board-certified physician. The owner of a holistic medical practice, the medical director of Third Circle, a nonprofit organization providing families with opportunities to make healthy lifestyle choices. The list goes on and on. There are many pearls in this conversation, which I hope you will enjoy as much as I have. Dr. Grimshaw, hello there. Thank you very much for being here on the podcast with us this afternoon. My pleasure. Yeah. So uh, read up a little bit on your bio. You uh, graduated from MSU Com in 1986, two years after I was born. I'm not trying to make you feel old, Dr. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, board certified in family medicine, neuromusculoskeletal medicine, and cranial osteopathy. Uh-huh. And you've been practicing OMM for over 30 years now. Yep. So before we jump into your journey to a career in OMM, um, if you'd like to share a little bit about your, you know, your, your background, where you're from, maybe a little bit about your family, that'd be fantastic. Okay. Yep. I was, uh, I was born in Brazil, Indiana, and um, then my family moved to Danville, Illinois, and I, I graduated from high school there. And then went to college in Indianapolis at Butler University and then came up to Michigan State for osteopathic medical school. And um, I have uh, three children. They're Ben, Ashley, and Kelsey, and they're all in their 30s. And um, I'm married to Tammy. My, My first wife passed away couple of years ago and I'm just recently remarried and Tammy and I knew each other in high school so it was a, a very a, a beautiful um for both of us to yeah, um, to, re, to reunite and um so I've been I uh, went after medical school I my did my internship in Lansing at Lansing General and then a fellowship in OMM with uh, Dr. Greenman and Dr. Stanton in the Department of um, Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Michigan State before they before they had a PM&R residency. And I was interested in that, but it wasn't available yet. And by then I I had two kids. And so I went into family practice and um, then just started doing a lot of continuing education. First, well, I'd taken most of all of the continuing ed courses at Michigan State, and then I started teaching them in 89. And I did that um, for several years. I practiced in family medicine with OMM for seven years, first in private practice, and then we moved for my wife to get uh, go to seminary in Georgia. And so then I was in a public health clinic, and I worked in small rural emergency rooms in northern Georgia. And uh, it was in 95 that I took my first job as an OMM, like specialist is when I kind of switched. And that was in Ohio. And I, I had a, a, a in, inpatient and outpatient uh, service in Ohio. And then again, in at a rehab hospital in Pittsburgh before moving back to Michigan 
and then I was on faculty at MSU from uh, 97 to 2002 mm-hmm. at, in the department of OMM. And then I went into private practice, took, taking over one of my mentors' practices, Dr. Breiner, in, 2000, okay. in 2002. And then I've been in private practice since then here in, in town, first in Okemos, and then I just recently moved to Old Town about six years ago. And my office is in an old schoolhouse in Old Town now in Lansing. Neat. Yeah, that's you've been you've been all over, all over the yeah. country practicing OMT. So what what are your hobbies outside of your medical practice, Dr. Grimshaw? I know that you are a yoga instructor, which I find fascinating. But yeah. you have you have other hobbies outside of medicine? I do. And and yoga really informs I mean yoga was kind of a natural growth of personal growth. And it really informs my work too in OMM. So that I and I do practice regularly, and so that's that is a big part of my life. And um, but the things I like to do things out outdoors. I I like to camp and hike. We have we live on Lake Lansing, and we we have kayaks, and um, and then I also like to play golf. And I kind of I kind of grew up with that, and have started. Tammy really loves to play, so I've started to play more again. My my grandfather was a, a professional golfer and and was the um, pro of a municipal golf course while I was growing up, and okay. and so that was has always been a part of my life and a lot of people in my family play golf. Yeah, interesting. There's so many golf courses around Lansing too. I've been riding my bike around town since I moved here in June and have seen so many beautiful courses. Yeah, it is. It's it's a great it's. It's great to go around and play the different ones, and um, so I don't have there's there's a course real close to where we live, and so that's kind of our default. But then mm-hmm. we, we like to just you know try new ones. Sure, and I've been I've been doing some swimming in Lansing Lake, no longer because it's a little too cold now. But probably <laughs> swam past your house a few times. <laughs> you, you really yeah, we're straight across from the um, the South Park. Yeah. Okay. Very nice. Another question for you, just personal question, Dr. Grimshaw. Any book recommendations that you would have for the audience? Yeah, I I thought of two. Um, Right now, actually, I am. I'm reading one that I that I love. It's called "At Still: From the Dry Bone to the Living Man" by John Lewis, and it was it was um, shared with me by uh, one of the. Amy Dean, who's an attending up in Muskegon in OMM. And it's written by an English doc, osteopath, who spent 15 years writing it. And he spent four years in Kirksville researching. And it's a biography. And it's so much different than the ones that I've read before. And in, in that it's it's a lot deeper. It's a lot more interesting. And it really portrays him um, in much a deeper way. And so I'm real. I'm enjoying it because some of the, you know, I never was really all that taken with the, you know, the language of the 1800s and with the autobiography mm-hmm. and so forth and philosophy of osteopathy. And this really puts it in modern language and context that shows how much of a visionary he was. So I'm enjoying that a lot. And then another one that I, I really think is a fantastic book for doctors. It's called Doctors, a biography of medicine by Sherwin Newland, and he, who was a, um, a surgeon 
and medical historian from Yale. And it it's it's a very um, inspiring book. It's about great doctors in the history of medicine and their accomplishments. Like one of the chapters is about the pediatrician and the surgeon who first who did the first surgery on babies, blue babies with tetralogy of hello. Oh, at, John, at Johns Hopkins, you know, and it's just, a, it's a very, incre- it's a great story. It's an amazing story. And yeah, that's that's just, he, he tells it with a lot of, you know, it's just like you're hanging on every, you know, word. He's a mm-hmm. really great storyteller. But yeah. yeah. Fantastic. From, I'll have to look up those books. The, um, the book by John Lewis, or where can that, where can that be found? Yeah, I, I checked that out because after I'm, I'm into it, I want to get my own copy. And I ask Amy, because you can't get it on Amazon. It, it, you can, but it costs like $150. So okay. the publisher is in England. And so you can get it from the publisher in England. And I'll, let me see if I can. Yeah, and then it's um, MPG Biddles Limited in Norfolk um, okay. in England. So Dry Bone, Dry Bone, press interesting yeah that that will be uh both those must reads yeah thank you so much for sharing that you bet um last question personal question a documentary movie recommendation that you would have for us okay yeah um well one of my favorites is it's called 10 questions for the dalai lama and it's a documentary by a guy who actually asked for an audience a Westerner who asked for an audience with the Dalai Lama and then made this journey to go meet him. And he had, he was allowed 10 questions and you, and you get to hear what the Dalai Lama has to say. And it's, um, the music of the movie is amazing. The story is amazing. And then of course his perspective on the world is, is a great perspective. I'm really very interested in philosophy and, um, and it's just very, um, it has he has this perspective that is so much un, un, unifying mm-hmm. you know, and non-judgmental mm-hmm. and so he's yeah he's one of my heroes yeah absolutely i had dr matthew evitz on the podcast last week and he recommended a book by desmond tutu and the dalai lama the book of joy oh yeah so, yeah very a very similar recommendation in the book form mm-hmm. but yeah absolutely that's fantastic so dr grimshaw i'm i am excited to dive into this topic with you i i also interviewed dr kinchillo thomas kinchillo and he said you know ben you have to get dr grimshaw on the podcast he has an incredible story and he would be so fun to interview so i've been awaiting this conversation for a number of months and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to be here. Well, thanks for asking. And so I guess my first question to you would be, how, how did you initially become interested in, in osteopathic medicine? Okay. Well, I, I was uh, in college and my first wife, Beth, her dad it was a DO. And um, he and I were talking about what I was learning in environmental studies, which was an interdisciplinary kind of major. It was fascinating. And um, I was learning about systems and ecology. And he goes, well, you know, 
osteopathic medicine has a, a, a very holistic philosophy and and he is not a man of many words but at that Christmas he gave me a book by Norman Cousins The Anatomy of an Illness as Perceived by the Patient I think it was a 1979 book and Norman Cousins was the editor of Saturday Review a really prominent fellow and he he developed a, like an autoimmune disease and then instead of um, kind of going the normal route, he, he tried to find a physician that would help him um, heal instead of just like get treated with a lot of disease modifying medicines. And, and he actually did recover and it was ankylosing spondylitis. So nobody thought that was even possible. And it was documented in the New England Journal of Medicine. So, but his book was about the. He, it really um, centered around the um, relationship between the doctor and him, and how his perception of the doctor as his partner, and um, to help him get where he wanted to go to heal. And I thought to myself, now that sounds like a really cool job. And so I started thinking about maybe becoming a doctor, which, and I had a lot of reservations. I didn't have much experience or know anybody that was a doctor except for best dad. And so I, um, I just started exploring it and I did actually, and then a lot of my professors were like, well, you should be an MD. You know, I, w I was at, in Indiana, there wasn't a osteopathic school there. And so I did a lot of interviewing of people and eventually just applied to both and interviewed at both MD and DO schools and got accepted to both. But then the interviews really helped me um, make the decision because the I could I realized that my my ideas about you know holism and systems theory and um, looking at the whole the patient um, and being focused on the patient were much more compatible with in the osteopathic philosophy. And so we moved to Michigan. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about when you're saying your system studies? This was in, this was an undergrad. Yeah. Um, what, what exactly did that entail? Like, um, understand, like, let's use like, um, an ecological system, like a forest, you know, like a okay. rainforest. I see. And how thing, the interrelationships and the interdependence of, um, all the different species that live in that environment. Mm -hmm. And see. so, and, and my, my other major was I had, you have had a concentration. And so mine was chemistry. And what I did a lot of my work on was um, how principles for evaluating how chemicals get into the environment and how then that influences, um, you know, groundwater and soil and the air and, so that the complexity of it is what I mean. What was so interesting to me was that everything affects everything else. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. How your undergraduate studies, the influence of your then wife's father, led you to osteopathic medicine, which um, combines. It is almost that exactly as you expressed it. How um, our our body, all aspects of our body, how 
they all influence one another, whether those are the different systems, the heart and the lungs and the liver, you know, to our, the fascial connections. Right. And then, and then how we're influenced by our environment around us, our our diet, our relationships, et cetera. So it was, I, I, I'm, I am always like a, a synthetic kind of thinker. I, like when I take a history, I'm listening for things that tie things together. I'm not like a, I don't like to put things in. I'm not an analytic person in a sense of like putting somebody in a box. Mm-hmm. I'm listening for what connects. So I, you know, when I think I listen to their stories and what they do for their living, what their family's like, what their history is like, what their, um, and and putting putting all that together and looking for the common denominators, the threads that tie things together for that person, then you yeah. you really get to know them and you get to have a sense of their what their their perspective on life is and what what their life is like. Sure. And so osteopathic medicine, when you started first year medical school, or I guess even in the interview process, you felt like this this is a good fit for me and for the career that I would like to have. Yep. And so in first year of medical school, you know, you're going through your basic um, physiology, microbiology courses, pharmacology, and then you got to OMM. So what did, did that resonate with you right away, that course? It did. Um, right. And I, I've, I've always been a, a, a hands-on person. Like I, I did, I started uh, doing woodwork when I was in high school, um, got my first table saw and started making things. And so I, I really am a, a hands-on learner. And so it was very, it was very natural. I just had, I had an aptitude. I could feel things. And I, and I got the feedback from my instructors right away that, Oh yeah, you, you, you're feeling it. And, and you know, with with palpation, it's we can all palpate things, but the uh, the skill is to interpret what you're feeling, to learn how to interpret what you're feeling. And um, so, yes, I I liked it, and I had a, a kind of a formative experience. I first summer between first and second year, I took my first cranial course with Viola Fryman who is mm-hmm. a, one of the students of Sutherland. And she was a formidable presence. I mean, she was terrifying, basically. Um, really, really um, <laughs> a powerful presence. And I I took that course and just kind of got blown away by the detailed, ama- her, her amazing ability, abilities as well as her knowledge. And, um, and so that really kicked off kick-started my sense of like I guess the potentialities of what OMM really can do and um sort of the depth of it because it was so much more um in-depth and intense than like our regular labs that we had for sec first and second year okay do you have any particular story about Dr. Fryman that sticks out in your mind uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so there, there was a, um, a time during that first course when she, she was demonstrating on me, and 
show and and just talking to me she wasn't like talking to all the people but she was just showing me like as a like a table trainer kind of thing and she was working on an area in my thoracic and not only did i feel her hands but i felt this a sense of energy flowing from her to me and right through the middle of my heart my through my chest and it was um it was a kinesthetic experience that was like undeniable and it was and so I asked her about it and she said well that's just that's just love coming through me to you and um i later heard the same thing from dr fulford who was another one of my teachers and um i i just had this sense of the depth of what what you could cultivate as an OMM physician um, and how much you could really do on a much more complex level than the simple rearrangement of uh, aligning the vertebrae or something, you know, like there was Mm -hmm. this greater depth to the work that um, frankly just blew me away. Yeah. So with Dr. Fryman, what, what made her such a powerful presence? Was it that, aura that she gave off of, of kindness or um, was it her knowledge, which was impactful? Well, it was, yeah, it was all of that. You know, I think what one thing that I'll, I'll tell my students is when you walk into a room, there, there are things that you're bringing to the table, so to speak. And the table is a good metaphor for, you know, that we do, <laughs> we do OMM on it too, but yeah. you, you know, things you have knowledge and you know how to do things. You have you know how to perform procedures and OMM uh, methods. And but the most important thing that you're bringing is yourself and who you are and the sum total of what you've done to cultivate the quality of person that you are and your ability to be aware and to listen and to be present with that person. And that third part is what um, we don't teach it or talk about nearly as much as we do the other things. You know, you take tests on what you know, and you and you have to pass practicals to show what you can do. But who you are is up to you. And so that that cultivation of um, your own. Um, kind of person you want to be that's what i saw in her was this life of uh you know dedication and um mastery and then and then this desire to teach and share what she knew and and she did it with such intensity because i think of the what she had cultivated within herself to let her be able to say with clarity what she was doing and to know the anatomy like no one I'd ever seen or heard before. You know, it was just, it was, it was her presence in, in the sense of like who she had become. Mm-hmm. I see. And so when you talk about the importance of an osteopathic physician cultivating the person that they, they want to be or they want to become, what, what things are you or activities or, or what do you about in your mind when you say that? Um, self-awareness, um, 
like in and I'll use I'll use yoga as a as a as a way of explaining it because in yoga we we talk about um, action with awareness. You know, like you're you're living your life and you're aware of what you're doing, and you have to you have to practice so that you're you're good at it. You have to um, be a look at yourself in the mirror with some clarity instead of delusions about who you are. You know, to be honest, like brutally honest and authentic as a person and so you the practices of yoga help you to you know refine that who you are and to be honest with yourself and it helps you just dissolve the ego and so you're not you're not doing things to get rewards or to get attention or to have influence but you're doing things to to be the the best person you can be without you know, trying to um, let your ego get in your way, and so it, it's self self awareness, and then just honesty with yourself. So for me, in the many early, in the early years, it was a lot of journaling. I, I'm a regular person that journals. I started meditating when I was like 18 years old, um, and so that's been a part of my life throughout my life and it just as a as I started developing as a physician I realized the importance of continuing to hold on to that because it was just you know you get so busy in the first part of your career and I had kids and was married and there was so much going on in my life and I had to have a way of like getting back to myself and figuring out you know what I what my needs were and how how can I get them met and you know, exploring the the inner the inner workings of myself. Mm-hmm. And so, do you do you believe that just having that self awareness and being true to the person that you want to be as a person does that does that enhance your palpatory skills in any way? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things Dr. Breiner said to me, she was another one of my teachers, was that every treatment is a meditation. And what she meant was, if you're remaining clear and aware of what you're doing and focused, then you're listening to the patient's body. And that is what guides you in knowing what to do. It's not like, um, it's like you're, you're listening to their body to know what you're going to, to do. And you're not, as you get better at what you do, it, you realize it's less and less of what you're doing, but what their body's showing you it needs. So if you, it's sort of remaining continuously aware while you're interacting with that person. You know, it's sort of like one of the practices is in yoga is to watch yourself do something. You know, like your consciousness is watching yourself do it. So you're, you have this point of view that's not tied up in, you don't get completely like um, absorbed in, in it and carried away with it, but you're watching yourself do it. So you keep this focus. And so when you're treating people, when I treat people, that's what I'm doing. And so that skill, you get better at that skill, you get better at what you do. Interesting. So it's really letting being self-aware, being present in the moment and letting the body 
tell you what it wants you to to do to it or to how, what it needs to get better, right? So you're asking, yeah. well, what does this person need? And and sometimes it is, you know, sometimes you're you're using OMM, but it's the OMM is kind of like a wake up call for the patient to understand better how their body works and how it can work. And sometimes when it's really simple, it it takes care of the problem. But in more difficult cases, it's like just a window for that patient into what could be. And then if they get a glimpse of that, they they may get become more motivated to do the other things they need to do to become more well um, that, that they're going to have to be responsible for. Right. You know, their the exercise and nutrition and all the all the things that go into being healthy. Um, Because OMM, if if there's a chronic pattern in somebody, OMM can show them what it would be like if they, you know, if they could move better. But if they don't start changing the way they move, it 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 won't stay. Sure. So you're you're just pointing something out to them sometimes, and then they, of course, they they develop a. They sometimes will confuse what happened and attribute it to say me doing that treatment and sometimes the treatment does do a do a lot for them but then what they have to understand is that like i'm not going to follow them around and treat them every day and so what are they what but they have an idea now of what could be and then they might ask me because they have a lot of confidence now that they've realized i can i kind of i can help them like then i try to help move them into their own um you know self-efficacy to what 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 can they do to maintain and change continue to get better and so with your patients you know just continuing along this line um you you talk about on your your web page for your your clinic you're not treating a, a body and helping joints move better or releasing a tension in a muscle i mean that's part of it but you talk about treating the whole person Mm-hmm. And so you're looking at how someone's sleeping, their diet, um, exercises, stretching, that as well. What, what kind of like mental health, um, I guess, treatment plans or, or um, do you give to your patients? Yeah. Or, or do you address that or how do you address that? Sure. Well, um, I guess in different ways. Um, just drawing attention to it so that they can make connections. And I think um, the relationship of their thoughts, their feelings, and their physiological state of their body and how that all connects. And um, so part of it is just pointing this out and a a lot of um, affirming and validating their, their experience. And then I do have a number of counselors in town that I've, I've worked all the through these years to develop a network of people to whom I can refer patients. And so, and I try to match the, the patient with the person I'm sending them to, to that's kind of the art of practice is to kind of get a sense of what that patient needs so that you can send them to the right, you know, either mental health therapist or lifestyle educator or coach or physical therapist, or occupational therapist, or wherever you might be sending them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so that they match up, you know, and that it's going to be a good fit. Sure. Yeah. I feel like that's very, very important that um, they, they respect and can relate to the, the, the therapist. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, we, we went on a, a super interesting tangent, um, bringing it back to med school. So you're going through med school, you're, you're loving OMT. You have this um, palpatory gift um, for, I guess we can fast forward to, to fourth year, unless there's something else that you want to talk about. Um, how did you decide to do, I guess you were thinking about um, family medicine, physiatry, but physiatry didn't exist as a residency at that time. How did you decide to go into family medicine? Well, in, in my fellowship, Dr. Stanton, who at that time was the chairperson of the physical medicine rehab department, he said, um, and, and his own history, and also Dr. Greenman, who was my other mentor that year, they both were family doctors for the first, I think, Greenman was 16 years and Stanton was 14 years. And then they both came back to, to become specialty in OMM. And, and Dr. Stanton in PM&R and Dr. Greenman in OMM. But, but Dr. Stanton just said to me one day when we were talking about it, he goes, well, why don't you just, why don't you go into family practice and just learn what it's like to take care of people? He's a very, he's a really practical man and wise. And, and I thought, well, that, that's a good idea. And so I kind of went into family practice thinking, okay, I'm going to, you know, experience what it's like to watch what happens to people and, and, and to take care of them through whatever happens to them. And so, you know, I delivered babies and did hospital medicine and watched some of my patients die and watched some of my patients get born. And when there was one day when both happened on the same day, that was a powerful day for me. Um, and I, it was just when you're just really immersed in taking care of people, you, um, you see a lot and you learn a lot. And I guess the key to it is, is to try to learn from it, you know, to, to pay attention. You be present and pay attention and yeah. you, learn, you learn so much. And so how many years did you practice family medicine where you were taking care of these patients? Seven. Seven years. Okay. Yeah. And then why the transition from family medicine to specialize more in OMT? Although I still, you're still practicing a little bit of family medicine, aren't you, in your clinic? Or yeah, it I, I, it's kind of an, I, as the years went on, I expanded a little bit beyond the OMM and didn't really limit the practice to any one diagnosis because I, I started to realize, like, I was asking myself when I was in the middle of the OMM years, like, why, why is it that some people don't get better, you know? And I seem to be doing a similar thing for these different people, but some of them get better, some don't. What's the difference? And I realized that, and, and that was also when I was starting to study yoga, and I realized the importance of all the ways you have to take care of your yourself to take responsibility for your own health and like nutrition and exercise and stress management and sleep and so forth. And so I... I expanded, I started studying some, you know, functional medicine and lifestyle medicine to try to help direct people in, in the way 
and doing the things that they can do. So it's, that was what, when I, I think of it as just more of an integrative thing to, to realize that there's, there's, everybody has different ways of getting better. And, and so, and so no two people with the same problem necessarily experience it the same or get better from it. And, you know, they have to follow their own way. And my job is to help them find it, you know, to point it out to them and help them and then encourage them to do it. Sure. And yeah, I agree, you know, with, with OMT, sometimes patients don't get better and you wonder, well, am I not making the correct diagnosis? Am I not, am I not performing the adequate treatment that their body needs? But I agree with you that, um, health is extremely complicated. It's sleep, it's diet, it's exercise, it's um, decreasing stress levels through whether that's journaling or meditation, deep breathing. How, how do you address, do you address all these points in one visit or do you kind of piecemeal or is it really listening to the patient's story and trying to figure out what is really driving most of their, yeah. um, their pain or their stress? Yeah, I, you you can't overwhelm them. You have to take it one or two steps at a time, and so I try to use my intuition to find a way in. You know, what they're going to relate to, and what they're willing and interested in doing first. And it, I see. Rather than like when I was younger, I thought I knew what they needed first, but then I realized, well, I didn't, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> And so then I had to, uh, then I, you know, it was as part of that thing where you, you temper your own ego, right? And you realize that everybody's got their own way to go and you got to accept them where they are, meet them where they are, and then work with them from there. So it's, it's step by step. It's, you know, um, incremental. Yeah. So, so how you, do you let, so you say you no longer... You let the patient kind of tell you what they think they need? Yep. I ask them. I just ask them straight up a lot of questions a lot of times, leading them. And, and then say, okay, that sounds good. Then how? You know, then how? You know, okay. and, and to get to heels, a lot of times people need to move past why and get mm -hmm. to how. The how is a much more interesting and useful question than why. Because you don't always know why you got hit by a car or got sick or, you know, but how can I get better is a more interesting question. And, mm -hmm. and to let go of the why is sometimes what people, that's what's, that's what gets people stuck. And they start mm -hmm. to really identify as a victim instead of, you know, somebody who could get better. Sure. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. Um, I'm going to go back just a little bit. So you, you practiced family medicine for seven years. You had this experience with Dr. Viola Freiman in, it sounded like first year of medical school. Mm -hmm. Did, is that experience with her in that cranial course, is that, is that what got you very interested in cranial osteopathy or osteopathic practice? Yeah, I think you know, cranial to me was more, it's more subtle. And it, let's see, in my first few years, I feel like I was real mechanistic. And I, you know, I treated FRSs and ERSs and 
you know, myofascial release. And I, I looked at the it real mechanically and I, and I think that's a really important, the foundation. Mm-hmm. There was a point in time by practicing more cranial and like where you sit and listen more to the body, to its inherent rhythms and inherent motions and whether or not there's vitality in the tissue and so forth that, um, and how, like how forces travel through it. Um, and where those forces are getting blocked, like we're if, like a like a rock in the stream. You're moving, you're moving, putting a force through the leg, for instance, up through the hip into the pelvis. And like, where is the point at which that isn't traveling cleanly? You know, through and starting to feel those deeper things. Um, it was like the body became more alive under my hands. Like instead of like me moving it and just looking at it as a static thing. Um, I started to feel more of the animation within, the life within. And the, and cranial really helped me, I think, develop that ability to perceive um, more, you know, to more layers of understanding of what I was feeling. So and so I just kept doing it because it was because it was fascinating. And it you know, it also helped people. And I and and for me, it became a whole lot more interesting to um, to put my hands on people. Sure. And so, what kind of uh, disease processes are you treating through cranial osteopathy? Are you treating tension headaches? Um, sure. Or I know in kids, you're treating right. It, it, it so cranial was when Sutherland described it he 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 really just meant to expand the the concept of osteopathy in to include the cranium and the system between the you know th- along the spine to the sacrum from the head to the sacrum um and so when we talk about being a cranial osteopath when i talk about being a cranial osteopath i'm treating the whole body i mean i'll treat a sprained ankle using cranial methods it's, it's the whole body and so you're, it's a way of just listening and attending to what you're feeling, sort of another uh, level, sort of layer of connectivity mm-hmm. that you can feel through the fascia and the, and the joints and the muscles. And so it's you, you apply it to everything. So do I get a lot of referrals for headaches? Yes. You know, from brain injuries, concussions, headache trigeminal neuralgia, temporomandibular joint, you know, cervical cranial uh, headaches, like um, cervicogenic headaches and so forth, uh, vertiginous kinds of um, problems. So I do get a lot of that. I get a lot of neurologically based kind of referrals um, as well as then the more musculoskeletal. So that's the majority of what comes to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you it does it just it's like a um it it just becomes the way you're it's another way to listen to the body i see okay so playing i'm gonna play devil's advocate a little bit because i have heard this out of osteopathic physicians mouths that they you know they say i don't believe in cranial um, osteopathy i don't believe that's a real thing i know we were taught in osteopathic school but i don't I don't believe in it. What, what would you say to that? 
Um, it's 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 similar to a a, a lot of uh, other things in life. If, if you don't have any experience with it, um, you don't you don't know anything about it. You're just ignorant of it. Um, it's it's um, it, to to take to ever to ever assume that just because you don't know about something, it's not real, is a is a big mistake. Um, because the more you live and the more you pay attention to your experiences, um, the more you, more depth of understanding you have about whatever it is you're studying. And so it, I just think I just smile at people and, you know, I, I don't necessarily try to argue with them because if it doesn't seem like they're, I have any uh, curiosity, then, you know, then you're not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, you know, I try, you know, so the, the experience of something is the most important part. And I guess that that's the example with Dr. Fryman is I experienced something. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with meditation and other kinds of, of practices that are, that are more subtle, you know, and the breathing practices and the meditation practices and yoga that you experience things that are outside of, of the norm is if you don't do those things, if you don't practice those things. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Okay. And so moving along, so you, um, let's see, you wanted to talk about your time at Michigan State University and the research that you had done yeah. in osteopathic medicine. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Okay. Yeah, the so uh, when I was, I worked with um, well Lisa DiStefano, um, and Ray, Ray Brodeur while I was there. We I did. Um, Lisa and I did a project with um, Bill Johnston on inter-rater reliability in um, ex- in the osteopathic examination, and with Ray we did a study where we Ray had a a a, a, a instrument that would measure stiffness uh, along the spine and we did we looked at physical exam as well as we had people do exercise and and then re re tested them and we tried to compare the the results of the physical exam with the more objective measurement of stiffness and and then if if to see if the physical examiner could tell the difference between because they were blinded to whether it was before or after exercise and okay. see if the, if it could correlate the objective measurements with subjective measurements in exam and um and so then that took me down the 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 route of studying inter-rater reliability and things all in, in physical examination, inter-rater reliability, listening to heart sounds, reading reading an x-ray, interpreting an x-ray, which is actually a subjective thing. The x-ray itself is objective, but the radiologist reading it is that's a subjective thing. Mm-hmm. What what they're what they're going to see it there, and the same with physical exam, and found out to my somewhat to my dismay that the subjective aspects of practicing medicine are, uh, it's remarkable just how often we miss things. 
and how uh, inaccurate we can be. And mm -hmm. so that was sobering because I thought at that point in my career that surely we, uh, I could, you know, Lisa and I, for instance, both of which, you know, are, were skilled manual practitioners could agree this is, on, on this, an examination of the same patient. Right. But what I said, what was, point in your career, Dr. Grimshaw, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Uh, it was in, uh, so 97 and I started practicing in 88. So it was like nine okay. years, nine years ago. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and so I started seeing the difference between the subjective and objective aspects of reality. And so part of the, um, I'm just going to tie this back in with what I talked about earlier with practicing your own you know, awareness. Like in, in other words, like sitting back and watching yourself do things. Mm -hmm. That's like the subject of watching, watching your, um, the doer. And so when you think about being and doing your presence, your, your, your consciousness and your presence while you're doing something, if you're more, if you if you really practice being more aware of what you're doing, you do get better at doing it, and that does decrease the error. But there's an inherent there's always an inherent error because any kind of interpretation of what you examine is a subjective experience. And so what we what I learned is that in all the studies all across medicine, from musculoskeletal examination to heart sounds to lung sounds to palpation of the abdomen and so forth um that there's a lot there's a lot of uh, error there's a huge air margin for error in in all of those things and it and it it really actually at first i was dis discouraged but then i realized well this is really important to know because we kind of have this inherent sense of it's like well we're right this is what I saw. This is what I heard. And mm -hmm. maybe you're right. Maybe you're not. And to have that, a healthy skepticism for, uh, for that um, subjective aspect. And so when people say, I want more studies, you know, inter-rater reliability or, you know, trials of OMM, we're looking, we're looking at, a, there's just a lot of um, room for error and you and it's very hard to apply the same treatment to like 15 different patients with low back pain because they're all going to have different patterns of uh, abnormality and so it's not like giving somebody a medication somebody that has you know um stomach cancer and and there's a certain chemotherapeutic agent that's used on on the one group in a trial and another on another group you, with that, you can use the, the same treatment and apply it to different people. But with OMM, it's very—it's not the same thing. We're looking at a different kind of um, situation that you're that you're trying to study, and it's got a whole lot more um, subjectivity and in, lack of precision because of that. And and so it was. So you're talking about like making a, let's say, a sacral diagnosis. You could go into a room and diagnose a right on left, and then you walk out. You don't tell Dr. DiStefano your diagnosis. She walks in, and she gets a left on right. Mm -hmm. That's what you're talking about, this? 
Yep. This reliability between ex- practitioners' diagnosis of a body part. Right. And so... And the act of examining the patient also changes things because you're asking them to move. And so there's that too. So when you go in, so if we use the same patient and I go in and look at him, I don't try to treat him, but I do put him through, you know, flexion and extension mm-hmm. and say prone and standing and seated. So I've moved them all around. I walk out, Lisa comes in, does the same thing. Are, do Can we even assume that we're going to find the same thing? Right, because you've already put them through range of motion, which is changing the fascial tension and muscle tension. And... Right. So, so what do you say to somebody? Well, I mean, OMM, it's an imprecise science. It's, you said you were frustrated initially. How yeah. did you get over that frustration? Yeah. Well, um, I think for me, I started to think about it less as a procedure. Okay. And more as an, an inter interaction with the, with the patient where I'm listening as much as I'm doing. And from, and, and I try to read the pattern and then I, and I do what I can to, to make that pattern better. But I also tell the patient what I'm seeing. And then I usually give them things to do that would help them move toward more symmetry and you know balance of, of the tissues. And so I think of it as a, just an ongoing process of moving somebody along um, from where they are to a better level of function. And I don't think of it as much as like doing OMM as a procedure anymore. And why do you not think of it as a procedure? Because because you feel like it's imprecise in, in its diagnoses or? No, just because it, it's an ever-changing situation. And so it, it's more like a, um, it's a process. I think of it more as a, a process than a, a more of a, a distinctive inter, interaction, like say removing a mole. It, that's see. that's a precise thing. You you know what you're doing. You take that out and it's done. And the mole's not going to be there anymore. But when you're helping people move, you're you're getting them from point A to point B. But you may, but there might there's it's a process that you're working through, and you're going to use OMM is just one of your tools. I see. And you, so you, the you diagnosis can them with your hands. You can you can do things that they're moving and you're cueing. So, you know, OMM is a spectrum between the operator doing almost all the work, like a high velocity, low low amplitude thrust to showing somebody an exercise where they're doing it and you're just showing them and everything in between, like muscle energy is a combined thing where you're, you're doing some things, they're doing some things and it's back and forth. So on that continuum, um, it's more like a procedure when the operator is doing the majority of the work and it's more like teaching um, movement when the patient's doing more of the work. I see. And in your mind, it's, it's kind of this balance between both the operator doing a little bit of work and teaching the yep. patient how they should move. Yep. And so for you, it's less about 
or is this fair to say, is it less about a OMM diagnosis and more about the treatment, the treatment process and getting them, getting the patient to be more functionally sound in their movement? Um, I'd say you, the documentation is important because you, you're trying to see what where they are and if it's changing from one visit to the next. So you, the documentation is important to see this is where we appear to be today. And then how does that look the next time they come? So it's the diagnosis is still important and you do you try to be very consistent about the way you come to it, but it but you're in the middle of a process. And so you're and you're working from point A to, to whatever to whatever you're trying to achieve. And it helps you to accept people where they are and just move them along. Because the, the the patients that we see are on this whole continuum of health as well. Some people are really sick and can hardly do anything and other people are really healthy and they all come you know as an omm doctor they all come to me i've got you know like yoga teachers and elite athletes that will come and they're just wanting me to just make things just a little bit better just really fine-tuned like you're you're uh taking care of a sports car and other people are just trying to get out of their chair and so wherever they are you take them where they are and you try to take them where they want to go I see. And so what would you say was the, um, the, what did the research that you performed with Dr. DiStefano, how did that push science forward? Was it simply that, hey, I can make a, a diagnosis of a sacrum, another practitioner can make a diagnosis of a sacrum, and there's not really good liability between our diagnosis. And the reason is because the tissue is changing as we're making our diagnosis. Yep. And, and the inherent subjectivity of a physical exam. I think what it, what we found was that we get the similar results to um, the studies that looked at what radiologists saw in a chest X-ray and the studies that looked at what cardiologists heard on heart sounds. And so we, we compared it to the literature and the rest of, of that field of interrated reliability and we found that our results were similar i see and there, I see. And which but and so we didn't have we didn't consider it bad results we just mm -hmm. thought we thought we might be able to do better than that and we found out we couldn't yeah we're just as good as a cardiologist listening to a heart murmur yeah exactly <laughs> Ventral valve prolapse yeah. right and it's similar similar numbers and statistical findings uh, in the different uh, areas of, you know, where that kind of research has been done. I guess what's challenging in OMM is we really don't have something objective to go off of besides our physical exam. I mean, we don't, we're not shooting, well, I guess we have, we don't have any, any dynamic way of seeing how the patient is moving. You know, like a radiologist, they have their x-ray, which is objective, and then they make a subjective interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, we don't really have anything like that in OMM, right? Right. We get, mm -hmm. There are certain things that can be measured. Like the other day, I had a COPD patient that came in, and mm -hmm. she had been in a car accident which with some fractured ribs, so she was, she's really struggling. And so we, t we just took her O2 sat at the beginning of the visit, 
and it was 91. And at the end of the visit, it was 94. And that made her very happy, you know, because yeah. she, she and she could feel she could feel it was easier to breathe. So there I mean, there are some things you can do to measure mm-hmm. that. But you're you're measuring function, you know. Right. And and that and that example is a good one in my mind about what we've been talking about, because then she then what's she going to do when she goes home? Because I don't I'm not going to treat her every day. So then what could I tell her that's going to increase her um, mechanical ventilation, you know, her excursion of her rib cage? Sure. What, you know, what can I teach her and that she can do for herself that's going to help her get back to, say, consistently being at 94% on room air instead of yeah. 91 Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Grimshaw, we are coming up on an hour. There are so many other questions that I want to ask you, and I hope we can have a, a part two to this episode. Um, sure. Yeah. I'm, I've, I've enjoyed it. I hope it, I hope it was uh, what you're hoping for. Yeah, absolutely. I really, I really appreciate you sharing your journey to a career in OMM. I appreciate the book and, and um, documentary recommendations and, and about the research that you've done. Um, and we'll have to continue because I want to learn more about why yoga is so important to you and, and how you got in, how you became interested in the practice of yoga and why you wanted to become an instructor. Okay. So I think we might have to to leave that to part two, I want to be respectful of your time and I need to make it to my didactics as well this afternoon. Right. Oh, so, yeah. Well, thanks again, Dr. Grimshaw. I look forward to our next conversation. My pleasure. I do too. Thanks, Ben. Okay. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. Thank you too. Bye-bye. And there you have it. Dr. David Grimshaw, yoga instructor, physician, scientist, family man, and just all-around inspiring person. Stay tuned for the follow-up to this episode where we will dive more deeply into the topic of why yoga is so important to him as both a physician and individual. Please click on the episode link and ask any questions either myself or Dr. Grimshaw about the episode.